0: On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Isaac Asimov's foundation. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands, album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my new friend Sarah Caffey as we discuss Isaac Asimov's Foundation. Cheers, Sarah. Cheers. All right. So, Sarah, welcome. Uh, welcome aboard the Palaver. Glad to have you here. Really excited. So, just to, to fill in some background, we had, you know, we had met at work and, and were sort of trading stories. And, and I guess at the time when Foundation was actually airing, you were in the middle of reading, I believe, Foundation and Earth at that point. Correct. And. Um, You know, so obviously the season finished, you finished Foundation and Earth. I started to quote unquote read the books, realized I didn't have time and started um, doing audio versions as I drove back and forth between here and there. And at this point, I am in the middle of Foundation and Earth, but you have actually moved on to prelude to the Foundation. Right. Okay. And we're here on a Tuesday night. But the important thing is, is that on Sunday, just two days ago, you and I and your significant other, Kevin, spent the entire day watching season one front to back, nonstop, mostly nonstop. We did stop to eat once. Just a little bit. And so so that's kind of what brings us here, right? We've, we've read most of the source material. I've actually read the source material years ago. Um, there was a bunch of it I didn't remember. And... We've each seen the whole series at least three times, I think, at this point. <laughs> <laughs> and so I thought it would be really, really fun. Like, it was it, it was exciting with you having, you know, read the books, because obviously Stephen Goyer and, and crew take a, a different tack on a lot of things. And I think it's fun to try to figure out you know, what parts he's shown us, where he's, he's going to go. And so I figured we could just explore, you know, the the TV show, what we just watched, how it's different, how it's alike to the, the books and, and maybe where we think he's going to go. Now, I don't, I don't think we're going to get a lot of this right, but damn, it'll be fun to try, right?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Where
0: we should probably start is, and you, we've also listened to the Official Foundation podcast. And so it's, pretty well documented that before this all began, um, Stephen Goyer had mapped out an 80-episode arc to tell this, which we think that translates into about eight seasons based on ten episodes a season. Duh! But we weren't 100% certain how much of the material that was included in that, because if you think about the the way the stories came about and i looked into this a little bit so the the original three books were actually published as short stories throughout the 40s right. they, were, they were published as books i think in the early 50s 51 2 and 3 as i recall and then there was a long break
1: very long yeah about three decades or so three, yeah i yeah. think
0: it was it was between 53 and 82 or something like that right and in the interim Simultaneous, actually, in the beginning, there were short stories about the robots, which became, you know, iRobot. I think um, The Caves of Steel was written about that time, which I've actually listened to with my kids. Mm. That was kind of fun. I really enjoyed that. Oh, and I guess we should say, spoiler alert, we are going to spoil everything. (laughs) So we're we're going to just talk about everything. So if you want to stay pure and enjoy the tv show for whatever it is and you haven't read the books stop listening because we're gonna we're gonna talk about everything and there's a lot of stuff in there i think that is going to I, i think it's i think we can see where some of the things are going to go and i certainly have some crazy theories to throw out there um so spoiler alert if you like i said if you if you've are only watching the TV series, and you don't want to, you know, hear about everything that happens in the book outside, stop now. That being said, foundation novels come out, the first couple of robot novels come out, and the, the first um, Empire novels, which I, I don't know if those were short stories or not, but all of this, the, origi- the origins of all this came out around about the same time, 40s, 50s, whatever the case may be, Asimov was relatively young actually in the i believe there's an afterword on foundation's edge where asimov sort of explains a little bit about you know for the those intervening decades he had been getting offers questions whatever hey when are you going to do another foundation book? when are you going to do another foundation yeah. book and it's clear to me that by the time he picked up the pen in the early '80s to write Foundation's Edge and Foundation and Earth, that he knew where how he wanted to tie these things together. I don't know that there's any indication as to when he figured that out, but if we if we look at the publication dates, Second Foundation was in '53. The Caves of Steel, which was the um, the first full robot novel, was in '54. The Naked Sun, which was the second Robot novel, was in 57. Then Foundation's Edge in 82, and The Robots of Dawn in 83. Hmm, isn't that interesting? (laughs) Well, I guess then there's Robots and Empire in 85, and Foundation and Earth in 86. And then he went back to Prelude to Foundation in 88, and Forward the Foundation in 93 to sort of finish up the cycle. So, when he went back and started again in the 80s, it seems obvious to me that he knew he was going to tie all these things back together, because okay. it's, it's all explicit. It, Foundation and Earth winds up on the spacer worlds from the robot novels. You haven't read the robot novels yet? I haven't. Do we, Should we not talk about the robot novels, or...?
1: No, I think <laughs> it's um, it is fine to talk about them. I think they're too relevant to where the show has gone so far, so... Feel free to share things that you know from the robot novels that I might not.
0: I mean, but clearly it comes in. So the there are three spacer worlds, and the, the spacers were the the first wave of interplanetary colonists from Earth, and they generally established cultures based upon robots.
1: Right, and and he actually gets into that in Foundation and Earth, talking about the spacer worlds, yeah, talking about the two waves of colonization. And I think even says that there were 50 official spacer worlds in that first wave. And they visit a few of them in Foundation and Earth, which is pretty neat.
0: And so it's interesting when you look at the the first three of the robot novels, The Caves of Steel happens on Earth. The Robots of Dawn happens on Aurora, which Mm. shows up in Foundation and Earth.
1: That's the first spacer world, right? Correct. Okay.
0: Caves of Steel and The Naked Sun was back in the 50s, and that was on a different Spacer world. And it was, you know, one of the things that I find interesting about this, and we were having this conversation on Sunday, is foundation science fiction. Right? Right. And, you know, part of it, I think, is the original stories were written in the 50s and the 40s, and there's certainly a different time. The the subject matter and the pacing of those books are decidedly, you know, not certainly not modern, not even of the mid eighties when the rest of them came out. It's kind of a it's kind of a quaint look back in some regards, right? Like how I feel when I watch A Christmas Story. You know, it's like this little snapshot into you know Middle America. That, that's how I feel with those. I, I do think that my feeling is is that those books very much are science fiction, and I think I asimov you know, does a really good job of, of introducing the concept of psychohistory and what it can do and what it can't do, but he doesn't belabor the point with a bunch of jargon, which I think is nice. And it, in some ways, it's it's a lot like, I think, the Battlestar Galactica reboot, in that it takes the space milieu and the stories that are associated with it, but fundamentally it all boils down to interpersonal relationships, which is cool, Right.
1: It is. It is. And I think that's a part that is expanded on a lot in the show because they can spend way more time developing characters than Asimov did in those initial short stories where you only spend a handful of pages with each character and then it's on to the next short story.
0: It's amazing the way that happened, right? Because I can remember, because when I started watching the show finally, and it took me a while to get into it, And then you and I were talking, so I started listening to the podcast on my drive before I started listening to the books. And Goyer introduces the idea of how, at that point, two or three episodes in, you had met certain characters that had the same name, but they were going to be playing perhaps a different role. So Gail Dornick in, in the book is A, a man, and B, never gets anywhere near terminus. (laughs) You know, Um, and it's interesting the way the decisions they've made about how to how to utilize those characters.
1: I agree. I agree. I really like the fact that they're using Gail in this whole first season as our kind of audience surrogate point of view Mm -hmm. character. Mm -hmm. She has a much broader role, a much broader backstory We learn about her planet. And I think that helps a bunch to kind of maintain connection between the different threads and throughout these first 10 episodes
0: and i find it like on the rewatch on sunday given the fact that gail is sort of our you know our narrator if you will some of the things that she says as that narrator versus what she actually is shown doing in the show leaves a lot of gaps in between it does which is it's fascinating right so I'm, at this point, I'm giving Goyer enough rope. I can't see exactly where he's going. I don't agree with every decision he's made. But clearly, he's got something in mind. And and back to the very first point that I had, and it was funny because when you started reading, I guess it was Prelude to Foundation, there was a, an entry from the Encyclopedia Galactica, and Demerzel is mentioned as, what, the... The emperor's concierge, or something to that effect, and you know, because the name Demerzel, I didn't remember Prelude to Foundation. didn't make any. It didn't mean anything to me, and yet there it is. So he clearly has all of the books at his disposal. He's not pulling any stops.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I I am happy to see that he's already pulling in some of those prequel tidbits. And I was really excited when I started Preload to see Demarzel, to see Cleon, who I hadn't heard of in the books I'd read so far, um, at least that I can remember.
0: No, Cleon, Cleon is mentioned very much in passing, and it, and you and I have talked multiple times about the genetic dynasty and what a fantastic story that is. But in the books, it's funny. Um, I think the the only Cleon mentioned is Cleon the second, mm. and he's a very minor like you know you you don't really interact with him as an emperor and at the time when the when the story opens and harry and the foundation are shipped off to terminus essentially the the emperors aren't even running the empire it's being run by the the bureaucrats and and the courtiers or whatever the hell they are the aristocrats that's the word i'm looking for and and it's just so it's really funny how Goyer was able to take a relatively minor role and create a really compelling story around all of that.
1: I think the first watch through the show, I was a little bit pulled out of it because I was busy making all of the comparisons. And then on rewatch, I'm just appreciating them more and more.
0: Well, and and, and I saw a quote from him um, about the three actors who play um, Dawn, Day and Dusk. And it was, it was looking forward to season two mm-hmm. and some of the impact of, of the, you know, the, the big reveal at the end of season one. And he called it the jazz we're playing with those three actors, um, because they really do have a fascinating sort of chemistry between the three of them. I know initially we have a rising dawn, a very young child, um, but when they bring in the, the older dawn, in the back half of the season, I think those interactions become much more interesting to me.
1: They do. They do. And I think it's much easier to become attached to this, you know, repeating series of Cleons as they age rather than new emperor. Right. New emperor unrelated, however it might've been in the, in the books originally.
0: And, and it's fascinating because in the podcast, Goyer very explicitly, very explicitly goes into the idea of time as a character. Because it, you know, I think in, in the books, and I don't know what the, the number of prelude years is, but it's on the order of 500 years, maybe 600 by the time it's all said and done, that the books cover. So that's a pretty long period of time. And so Goyer, I think, has some very clever ways, apparently, of keeping the same characters and moving them through time. Now, that can lead to certain confusion. You and I have also had water cooler conversations very recently about this whole timeline thing. Because in the TV show and and in a lot of the, um, not a lot, at least one of the the press um, articles that I read, they make... There's a, there's a line in the show where it talks about the bow of Anacreon and how a century ago it was presented to the emperor as a gift. And this article that I read that was talking about season two also mentions that, you know, all of that happened a hundred years ago, which is complete BS. Because there are there's another line um, near the end of the season where it's made very clear that Cleon the 11th was on the center throne when the Bridge came down and Thespis and Anacreon were bombed. At the end of season one, Cleon the 12th is on the center throne. So that can't be a hundred years.
1: Exactly. And I, I know the show even presents us that 35-year time jump. And that's when we're kind of seeing the events of the first crisis right. evolve on Terminus. And so we know it can have been a century.
0: And, and that 35 years is is roughly equivalent to the first crisis in the books, if I recall correctly.
1: I think it was a little bit longer in the books. Um, Maybe like 50 years? 50 years, I think, is exactly when Harry's vault opens. His time vault opens on Terminus in the book. So it's a little bit of a shorter timeline in the show.
0: What were your feelings when the nature of the vault on the TV show was revealed?
1: You know, I didn't love it at first. I think, really? yeah, I was. I think it was part of that um, mindset of this is different than the books. I was expecting this, you know, pre-recorded message from Harry, but I quickly turned, and mm. now I'm so excited for this. Artificial intelligence version of Harry, who is now back in the vault at the end of the season, and and alludes to the fact that he will be seen again. So I like it. I like it a lot more now than I initially did. The fact that that vault is actually his casket that was
0: yeah, exactly. ejected
1: from uh, the slow ship that the uh, the Encyclopedist took to Terminus is crazy to me. I had forgotten that until this most recent rewatch.
0: Yeah, it's not. It's not just the AI version of Harry. it's Harry's body has been transformed into this thing, which is yeah. is pretty cool. I have to wonder because I think generally speaking they did such a great job casting on this show. So uh, Jared Harris is the actor who plays Harry Selden. I I don't think it would be a good use of him as an actor to have him be a pre-recorded because in the books, Harry doesn't doesn't do anything. He's he's a pre-recorded message that's triggered at certain times and describes, you know, in sometimes more, sometimes less general terms, you know, whatever the crisis is or was. That would be a gross misuse of him. Because I don't always like the way they present Harry, but as an actor, I think Jared is extremely engaging. Agree. Maybe not quite as engaging as Lee Pace, but Close. <laughs>
1: it's hard, he's hard to beat. I agree. One um, interesting thing I remember from um, the official podcast is that Jared Harris was the only actor who was given all 10 scripts for the season because in Goyer's mind, Harry Selden would know mm. what was going to happen. He has the plan. He has the math. And so he was the only actor who could see the scripts. Everyone else was kind of given you know, an episode at a time or a couple at a time.
0: I don't remember that. That's fascinating. Yeah. I'm kind of bouncing all over the place, but it just, you know, there's so much to talk about, right? So we've got Harry. Now there are actually two versions of Harry. Yes. Running around. There's Harry in the vault, which is bodily Harry. And then there's Harry in the knife. Okay. Now the knife apparently is sitting on Synax at this point.
1: It is. Yeah. Gail took it with her when she left the Raven.
0: Right. And. And when, during the rewatch, and I missed it, it must have been one of my nodding off periods, you said the raven appears to explode after she leaves.
1: It did, didn't it? And I didn't remember that from the first watch, but... So, so
0: all of this begs the question to me, and, and this is one of the big ones that comes out of the rewatch specifically. I had sort of been mulling this around beforehand. Has the Second Foundation not been established 150 years into this process?
1: I don't know. I I think, I know when we talked about this initially after watching the first time, I think you were wondering if this whole Helicon Second yeah. Foundation part was just a red herring. Because I know that, to me, is a pretty big departure from the book, if the Second Foundation is going to be on Helicon and not on Trantor. Right. And so... I'm curious what will happen now. And if the whole plan was for Harry to actually go set it up himself with Raish. Um, Goyer talked about really wanting to depict the second foundation being built in the show yeah. rather than it in the books already kind of being established. And we don't really see any of that happen.
0: That's partly why I have to give Goyer some credit and some, some rope here because we know all the pieces he knows all the pieces. And so when you're reading the books in real time, if you were reading them, you've learned, it's, it's almost, we were talking about Star Wars on Sunday, right? How do you watch Star Wars these days? Because they came out four, five, six, where you learn certain things. But if you watch one, two, three, you learn the big reveal in five, right? So we've got the same situation here. And and I think Goyer. To me, so far seems to be doing a really masterful job of doling out that information. I, I think you can project and almost imagine where he's going, but I'm not naive enough to think that I know where he's going because he's proven himself to be very adaptive with regards to the story. And I, I love it. I think it's great. And, and it's funny because normally I'm one of those people who is, you know, the literary purist. Oh, they changed it. The, here's five things I hate about this because they don't do it like it was in the book. But in this particular case, I don't know if it's because there was there was so much room in the source material, I think, to move around in, or it's been so long since I read the source material, or that it's such a good adaptation. I don't care. You know, I'm, I'm willing to embrace this for what it is and go with it.
1: Same here. Yeah, I think it's probably all of those things and now I'm just excited to see what is done next. And, and to me, knowing that the team has already presented this eight season plan gives me comfort. Mm-hmm. I know that they're planting seeds now that if they are able to make all of the seasons that they will pay off. I think they paid off a lot even in this first 10 episodes, whereas other shows kind of leave a lot more unanswered at this point in a series. Mm-hmm. So that gives me hope too.
0: Yeah, I'm definitely with you uh, with regards to that. I think, you know, again, all the indications are that we've got people who have a very firm control of the story they're trying to tell. And they're very adept at doing it. Yeah, I think visually there is a lot to to recommend this. In the official podcast, Goyer spends a good part of one episode, I think, talking about, you know, just how they found the locations, location scouting and what they used Iceland and some islands off Spain or something like yeah, that.
1: Canary Islands, I think.
0: Yeah. You know, but but even the the other visuals, I think, are just really stunning. Specifically one and it never really resonated with me quite as much. It might have something to do with your media room. The skies of Synax freaking rocked my world. I, I just thought that was I was fixated on You know the sunlight glancing off those rings and it you know i i had a i had a a fugue moment where it's like well wait can a habitable planet have rings and i stopped myself because it doesn't really (laughs) matter the 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 fact of the matter is you know what planetary rings are but you never thought about what they might look like from the surface of a planet and i just thought it was absolutely beautiful the way they did that even like the costuming and and it was so funny because again we listened to the, the podcast, and there was a, a decent amount of time spent on Rach's jacket. I never paid attention to that jacket until that listening to that podcast. And Sunday, I couldn't not look at it. Every time Rach was on the thing, I'm like, that is the weirdest piece of clothing I've ever seen.
1: <laughs> it is, and he really did not take it off he the didn't. entire time.
0: <laughs> he didn't wear it when it got pulled into the pool. True. He had it off then, but I mean, it was... <laughs> <laughs> it, it's funny. And then we had talked about Brother Day's ensembles. The, the blue sort of body armor with the long flowing dress part of it. I just and, and the way that Lee Pace pulls that off so spectacularly is great.
1: Yeah, I he's just, fantastic.
0: I, I love it. It's so good. I do have one sort of thing I want to throw out but I, I feel like I've been gaffing. So, Is there anything, Sarah, that you were particularly geeked by or or want to cover?
1: Yeah. So the one thing that really got me on this most recent rewatch, and it only stood out because I had read Foundation and Earth since my first viewing, is one of the sequences when they're on the um, Invictus Mm -hmm. and they get to kind of the control room and on the navigation panel written in blood is Exo. And so Salvor very quickly has a line about maybe they encountered something out there. Mm-hmm. You know, why did they write Exo in blood here? And, you know, that's kind of the the big reveal at the end of Foundation and Earth is that they need to become Galaxia right. and depart from the plan in order to protect themselves from other galaxies. Harry's plan is built on the fact that um, there is this one galaxy and all of the humans are accounted for, but it doesn't take into account that there might be other galaxies who could affect the math.
0: Yeah. And, and, and that is such a great catch, right? And, and if you don't necessarily know the source material, so again, first time through that didn't really resonate with me either. Cause I hadn't gotten through all of that. I believe the first time through, I don't, I don't even think I'd gotten through second foundation at that point. And okay, I got to take a quick aside, right? So I started listening to all of these because I realized I didn't have time to physically read everything. So I've just been, you know, buying them online and downloading them onto my phone and just listening back and forth. Most of these apparently have been recorded relatively recently. Hmm. Foundation, Foundation and Empire, Second Foundation and Foundation's Edge are all read by a man named Scott Brick was really good. I listen to a lot of audiobooks, and there are there are certain audiobooks I would listen to just because of the narrator. Um, Scott Brick is maybe in my top five. Um, he's not... Frank Muller's top of the heap. He's phenomenal. Simon Vance, who does a lot of the James Bond, as well as some of the Frank Herberts, excellent. Uh, I believe Scott Brick actually shows up in some of the, uh, some of the Dune ones as well. Hmm. And George Waddell's another good one. Scott Break is good. So I'm four books in, having a grand old time. And apparently Foundation and Earth was recorded sometime previous with a completely different reader. And this guy is not good. <laughs> and it's so frustrating. It, it's taken me half the book just to sort of stop being angry every time I listen to it. Because if you're going to... I don't know if you listen to audiobooks at all. I mean... Not much. Okay. Um, I mean, there's there's a way to do it. And there's a way to not do it. So this guy who reads Foundation and Earth, he has very clear diction, which is great. But he lacks any sort of emotion at all. So it's almost like you're listening to some sort of synthetic voice program. It's maddening. It's so sad. So we're talking about the big reveal in Foundation and Earth, and of course the big reveal in Foundation and Earth, huge spoiler, is that all of this is being orchestrated by robot Daniel Oliva from the Caves of Steel, who was like, you know, the the first robot that we were really introduced to. And he's been pulling the strings the whole time. So the idea that Demerzel is a robot and is in close contact in the court of the Cleons, you know, we have to ask the question, is Demrezel Oliva, or is she another robot? Right. Because there aren't other robots in the show. Is it ever revealed whether Bliss is a robot or not?
1: It is revealed that she is not a robot. She is a Gaian, um... There's a lot of speculation in the book that she might be. Yeah. And so I certainly thought she was for a while, but they, they do clear that up. Okay. Yeah.
0: Good. So, so in the source material, there's only one robot running around and that's Daniel Olavo. And we clearly have a robot here and you know, I just, I think it's fascinating to have a robot in that close proximity. Because either she is Olaval or she's working very closely with Olaval.
1: Right. And I feel like I have a lot of additional questions about Dimrizel and how she is getting around some laws of robotics, even in this first season. Because it didn't dawn on me until this watch that she, at I guess the Order of Cleon, kills Zephyr Halima before leaving the maiden and how is she able to do that because even if she was given a direct order she's still breaking the first law of robotics by killing this human how is she able to do that i think it's
0: it's all tied to the zeroth law of robotics which speaks to protecting humankind as a species right so clearly demiselle has some secondary programming associated with her that you know ties her to the the genetic dynasty so it's not immediately obvious what the drivers are there i could almost explain away the zephyr halima thing because in actuality while she says that she would if halima tried to run demmerzell doesn't actually do anything to her halima touches her and that's when the poison gets transferred. But I don't think Demersel herself actually touches any of her. It, like, initiates that, that contact. True. So you could, you could sort of talk yourself out of that corner. But clearly, in the last episode, when she takes care of the adulterated Brother Dawn, which leads to clearly some anguish in her circuitry, There are greater things going on there. We could have the discussion as to whether that act was brought about by the impact of the dynasty being tainted on the population. Was she protecting the dynasty or was she protecting the species? Right? Right. I I don't know.
1: And I think the additional question for me there is... Are clones somehow not seen as human in the laws of robotics? And so Mm. is it not technically breaking the law to kill a clone?
0: Especially when you got a a spare just downstairs. You
1: have plenty of spares and (laughs) tanks. You just decant one and it's fine. Plug him in! (laughs) I think you're right, though. The zeroth law has to come into play there. And I think that was something that's revealed at the very end of Foundation and Earth 2, is that the zeroth law made sense in theory, but when Daniel and Giscard, the other robot who's mentioned, right. tried to put oh, it into practice, God, they... I forgot about Giscard. Yeah. So maybe Demerzel's Giscard. Could be.
0: Because she presents as female, but that doesn't mean that she's female. Right. I mean, as much as robots have sexes.
1: Right. But... Yeah, my thinking there is, you know, in theory, that law worked, but when they tried to make decisions, it was very hard to tell what might negatively impact humanity. And so they were a little bit hamstrung and switched their plan to Galaxia.
0: Yeah. And, and see, I haven't gotten to the end of Foundation there, so I don't remember all of that story. So that's, I'm glad that you're bringing that up, but it's, it's interesting. And, and I guess in, I don't know again how far you are in, in the prequel books, but it's very clearly intimated that Demrizel influences Cleon the 11th to exile Selden and the Foundationers, as opposed to just killing Selden. Which, you know, again, knowing what we know, we know that the robots are behind all of this anyway. Right. So I don't know if, if, if Asimov sort of retconned that into uh, into the story, but it's very explicit, I think, in the TV series that that came about because of Demerzel. Because Cleon the Eleventh is clearly disconcerted by Harry Seldon. Well, and I guess the Twelfth becomes equally disconcerted by him. See, now I'm getting myself all twisted up in my Cleons, um, <laughs> but. You know, the, the normal arc of the Cleons is by the time you become Brother Day and you're sitting on the center throne, apparently you're all jacked up on testosterone and you just want to kill people all the time.
1: Yeah. And because when you were Dawn, especially when you were Ascending Dawn, you were watching Day do those things and learning what you were going to do and it was your turn.
0: Yeah. That whole that whole dynamic just, it just gets me. I love it so much. I love... I guess it's when is it the twelfth? He's talking to Azura at the end and explaining to her, "I used to want to be better, but now I just want to be the same as all the others." Of course, we know at this point that none of them are the same as all the others anymore. But
1: yeah, yeah, that's something I wanted to ask you. So we know that the Principium, the the source material, Cleon the First has been adulterated. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts about who might have done it or when that might have happened?
0: You know, and and I've been having fun with that because is it possible that the robot Puppet Masters actually did that? Or the the other thing that I've had is, did the Shadow Master actually do this? Because the Shadow Master has proven himself to be very adept at being in places where he's not supposed to be, showing up at very odd times... Magically, he's the one who's informing everyone that this is going on, and thought to look at the precipipium. Persi- uh, yeah, I, I, there's just something that pings my radar about the Shadow Master, and because the way I see it, there there are two potential. Well, there are probably more, but there are two potential explanations that I see. Either the robots did it to drive the plan to weaken and destroy the genetic dynasty, or the revolutionary groups who are fighting against them are much higher placed in terms of normal people than we would think. Right. And, and there, are, you know, there are people within the imperial household who are part of this. Could be. I mean, and if you think about the relative ease with the way that Dawn was set up, it just seemed to come together really easily. And there were a lot of things that people probably should have caught. Yeah, and, and that's part of the joy of, of watching the first time. You don't always know what to pay attention to. And, and there were, they give you so many subtle clues as to the, the third dawn's differences. But the one that, that hit me the first time that I did catch and I was like, was when they're all sitting down at dinner. And we had a fun time on Sunday talking about the seating order. Because it changes through every time they sit down to eat, they're, they're in a different spot. But the one where he picks up his wine glass with his left hand and then switches it right away. And every, like, Goyer did such a, a very careful job up until then of presenting the three Cleons as doing the same thing at the same time. And it was, that one was jarring. Now, when you go back and watch, you actually do see him clas- reclasping his hands um, and I, there are a couple of other things that he does that are maybe a little bit more obvious, but I, I didn't catch them the first time. But that that glass thing really did. You're know, like, what's that all about? And when you go back and watch it, knowing what's going on, it's kind of hilarious.
1: It is. It is. I don't know about you, but I was telling Kevin this that I know we're both left-handed people. I always pick out when there's a left-handed person on screen, and so that is super obvious to me that he was <laughs> holding the cup with his left hand and switched. It's like that guy's left-handed yeah i will pick it out of anything
0: but again i think it speaks to the the deft way that they're telling the story so i'm uh, i'm on board so another sort of overarching question and we can kind of dig into our notes and go through various fine points but the one thing i've been dying to say to you and i didn't want to say it before the rewatch because i i and i'm glad i didn't say it in front of kevin because i but i wanted it i wanted to have this conversation here Throughout the show, the, the, the few times I watched it prior to listening to Foundation's Edge, certainly, I was discomfited by what role Salvor Hardin was going to play in this particular ability she has. So I'm going to pose the question to you. Is Salvor Hardin actually Golan Treves?
1: Mm-hmm. Great question. (laughs) I, in my notes, have a big line between Salvor and Trevise. Not necessarily that I thought they could be the same person or that Salvor will eventually kind of fill that Trevise role, but Mm -hmm. that they have very similar intuition abilities. And as I was watching Salvor on rewatch, I kept thinking of Trevise and some of the lines from from Foundation's Edge and Foundation and Earth where... He's talking about the way he just knows things that are going to happen, seemingly without any data to back it up. Exactly
0: right. When I when I had that thought, because again, I, it had been a long time since I had read Foundation's Edge, and so as you know, the Travi's characters' abilities, if you will, were were sort of being illuminated. I was like, oh, okay, now I feel better, and. And again, I, I went back to Goyer's explanation of time as a character. And you and I discussed very early on in the series, having heard him say that, what's the end game with, with jumping these characters around? So, you know, through the use of the genetic dynasty, you get to sort of keep the same three actors, you know, interacting the way they do throughout long periods of time. But the whole Gail Dornick, Salvor Hardin moving through time together thing Especially if one or both of them winds up, you know, playing that role of, of making the decision because they know what the right decision is. That's a way that you can, and I don't know how he's going to do it, but that, you know, if you have the same character that you know from season one, making the big decision in season eight or whenever it is, that might be easier to, to accept. I don't
1: know. Absolutely. I think it'll be interesting to see how they continue to portray Gail and Salvor because they've shown Gail to have some of these intuitive abilities too. And we know that Gail is Salvor's mother at the end of the show. They're together. And so we presumably will see them in season two together at least for a bit. Well, and
0: it goes back to Gail being our narrator, right? So, yeah. In terms of their capabilities, there's some significant overlap there, which is interesting. And again, Gail speaks to, you know, being on Terminus, even though she's never on Terminus. So at some point she has to wind up there. Right. Um, the whole idea of AI Harry on the Raven gets all pissed off because Gail's supposed to be on Terminus leading the Foundation. Now... In the Foundation books, the big deal with the Foundation is there aren't any psychohistorians there. There are no mathematicians somehow, miraculously, on Terminus. Um, Everyone's toiling away, you know, the encyclopedias. In fact, that's the name of the first short story, I believe. Um, Or I guess it's the second one. The first one is is the, the trial. So why on earth would the only other person in the galaxy you can understand the math is Why is she supposed to be on Terminus? I mean, she should be the one going to wherever the second foundation is. And the fact that the Prime Radiant is not where it belongs really disturbs me. I'm not going to lie about that.
1: Yeah, I think that's a very interesting departure that they're making from the books. The fact that they are portraying in the show that everyone who went to Terminus already knew about the fall of the Empire something that wasn't revealed to them until Harry comes out of the time vault right. in the first book. They already know that. They know what their role is. Of course, Harry reveals at the end of the, the TV season, too, that that's kind of a ruse. And, you know, the encyclopedia Galactica is not the, the main goal. But it'll be interesting to see how they move those pieces around, too. Because you're right. It, it seems like Gale would be better served elsewhere.
0: Yeah, it just it's it's a very odd decision. So again, I'm I'm willing to to go along with this and see how they resolve it because you know maybe they've got a, a better answer. Who knows?
1: One interesting thing you made me think of. I haven't got to this part in the prequels yet, so I'm not sure if it's in Prelude or in the second prequel. But apparently, Raish has a daughter who's very important in setting up the second foundation.
0: Oh, really? Okay. And so... I, I vaguely remember that, actually. Yeah, Yeah,
1: I can't remember the character's name in the books, but I, I did read that and was thinking about the way that they're setting up, of course, Salvor being Ration Gail's daughter. Maybe she then ends up being instrumental in the development of the second foundation with Gail.
0: The whole nature of the second foundation, right? That's half of second foundation and certainly a good part of... Foundation's Edge, which it's interesting because Second Foundation and Foundation's Edge essentially tell the same story from slightly different perspectives, which I find to be fascinating. It's all about finding it and, and the, that whole big thing. So in the books, it's made very, it's stated very plainly that, you know, there's like one reference to the Second Foundation being its Star's End right, on the other side of the galaxy at Star's End. And so you get the different interpretations of what that mean um, with regards to a circular galaxy and, and all the the hoopla that goes along with that, which is interesting. Um, so this idea of, of Harry stating, AI Harry stating explicitly on the Raven, that, hey, we're going to Halicon so that we can set up the second foundation at Star's End, it just doesn't ring quite true and we know that harry didn't have any problem lying to people if it suited his needs so i just i'm i'm fascinated to see where this goes because while i'm open to a lot of different things especially if we're going to keep the genetic dynasty around the second foundation i think has to be on trantor
1: agree agree it, it has to That's one of those book differences that I'm holding on to. (laughs) Star's End is not Helicon. (laughs) Star's End is Trantor. All roads lead to Trantor. It's at Star's End.
0: So let's think about this for a second. On Synax right now, what? We are
1: 138.
0: Well, 138 years ahead of the 34. So we're probably about 170 years into the future. Right. On Synax, we have... Gail Dornick and Salver Harden and knife AI Harry. So one of the things that happens, and I I honestly don't remember which story it is, but somewhere along the lines of Foundation and Empire, um, it's probably on Second Foundation. I guess, yeah, it is in Second Foundation. Terminians, they call them in the books. Termini is the, the phrase they use on the TV show. People from Terminus wind up on Trantor. So is it, is that what's going to happen? You know, are they going to split up and go in opposite directions, and somehow, you know, the prime radiant and the the knife? Let's go to the let's go to the press. <laughs> in this article, which is um, by Tom Power from Tech Radar, apparently. I'm quoting from the article now. Fortunately, one of Foundation's main cast members members was more forthcoming about where season two is on the production line. Leah Harvey, who plays Helfer Harden, told TV Line, quote, we've already started work on season two, so some aspects of the development have started to move into gear. And that's certainly the case. As we mentioned earlier, Apple unveiled a first look image for Foundation season two on February 1st, 2022. The photograph doesn't give much away, but we know that Lee Pace's brother Day is set to verbally clash with Jared Harris, Harry Seldon. Well, the AI construct of Seldon's consciousness anyway. What was Seldon dying in the show's second episode? Hmm. So that knife has to wind its way to Trantor.
1: That makes sense.
0: That's a really good departure if you've got AI Harry talking to the Cleons. That's going to be a very interesting conversation if that's the way that goes down.
1: It is, especially (laughs) at this point. And I'm curious how much cover-up is going to happen regarding the Cleonic the dynasty. Mm-hmm. Does this information get out that they are not true clones? How long does it take for that to, to reach the masses? Is it possible
0: that the, the Kleons survive all of this? That they learn to adapt somehow?
1: I hope so. I just want Lee Pace around, being very dramatic. So I, not I truly hope Pace so. so.
0: <laughs> I, you know, and, and
1: again, the, this is
0: why I'm enjoying. I think the departures because I think, I think the way that that Goyer and his team have set this up, there are a lot of possibilities that still lead you in the same general direction, and and I just, you know, I I get enjoyment out of doing exactly this. Watching something three times, thinking about it for days on end, and then gabbing about it. Because I just, I enjoy the mental exercise. So it's, I get enjoyment much beyond the eight hours or 10 hours that I spend watching it on the screen. You know, I, I can entertain myself for many more hours, just going, what about this? And what about that? And I, I respect that level of cleverness.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I'm the same way. I'm already counting down the days until we have season two and hopefully many, many
0: more. Just imagine, because, and again, I got into it a little bit late, so I think I was a couple weeks behind by the time I finally geared up and got into it. But it's going to be so painful, that one, and it's a good painful, but that one show a week cadence, and you're just like...
1: (laughs) It is. I
0: know. It's going to be torture. (laughs) Because we have all these questions and we want them answered. Want to explore the the uh, genetic dynasty a little bit? They do such a good job of making them compelling, a uh, compelling story and compelling characters, especially with Demerzel. Like the way they show the different versions of Cleon interacting with her at different times, I-, I think is masterful in the way that they do it. Because it's a twisted scenario. I think in some ways, you know, they do the best they can, but and they they stated explicitly they're not each other's fathers they're not brothers and they have this sort of weird sort of dynamic that in some ways is self-reinforcing really you made the point rising dawn is sitting there seeing this behavior that he's going to presumably have to emulate when he becomes day on the center throne And so it's sort of, it's a feedback loop, right? Because you you keep seeing the same thing, so you keep reacting in the same way. You know, I I find that to be fascinating in this concept. There's an expiry date on these things. We know what day Brother Dusk is going to, you know, become Brother Twilight and get sent to the Ash (laughs) Heap. He's got to go through specific fittings so he can wear something special to get turned into a pile of ash
1: (laughs) makes zero sense I mean that's that's throw
0: on a robe who cares that's twisted yeah I'd be like fuck I don't care what I'm gonna wear (laughs) (laughs) and I don't remember if it's exactly the first time but I think the first time you see Demerizel put her hand on actually it's not the first time the first time you see Demerzel put the hand on the back is in that flashback scene which Mm. is with Cleon the first you're right they show that aspect of of Demerzel putting the hand on the back several several times. Cause she does it to Cleon the First, she does it to Brother Dusk slash Twilight before she throws him into the, the incinerator, and she does it to Dawn when he's walking into the throne room before his final thing. Right. Um, so it, it's I like that little detail how they they, they sort of show the the constancy of Demersel throughout all of this and how it sort of manifests itself with these Cleons. It just, there's so much to sort of mentally explore there. It's, it's bizarre. And, and what's really funny to me is the way that they change your perception of those characters. I think we've had this conversation as well in the first episode, you know, brother Day's a freaking lunatic, the guy's just a jerk face and you know brother dawn at that point rising dawn the little kid oh i'm i'm afraid well by the time he gets on the center throne he's the raging lunatic and he does some things and you're like dude that's not cool but then when he goes through the whole walking the maiden you really you start to feel for him and you know the whole thing with the with i guess the 13th um you know, being left-handed and colorblind and, and and you have this this genuine concern and fear for him. And and then of course in the big ultimate scene, right, where Day having had the experience that he had is thinking, Hey, maybe we can work with this. And Dust just hauls off and smacks him. <laughs> and those two are duking it out. And and you know, so it's it's fascinating to me the way they're able to to twist your your feelings about these three characters. I, I I could I could watch a show just on the genetic dynasty, I think.
1: I could too. It's so well done. I don't think I've seen anything lately that shows I mean, these are supposed to be our antagonists, right? right? And I feel empathy for them. Seeing Day sit there after his journey not having had a vision and sitting in that pool of water probably experiencing pain for the first time ever it's miserable, it's heartbreaking and you're right, you feel sadness and anger at them it's, it's masterful, I don't know how they did it but it worked so well I think it's excellent
0: screenwriting and it's excellent acting right? so the, the three of them I'm glad you brought up Day sitting in that cave without the vision because, you know, when he describes it, which of course we you know is all bullshit, yeah. Um, and then when they perfect cut perfect back bullshit. to the scene of him just sitting there in the cave, and yeah. you're just like, "Oh, that's terrible." I've been fixated since the first watch when Demerzel sticks the knife in on him because she knows that she's been played. That scene where where Demerzel basically fires a shot across the bow and says, I'm glad you had a vision because I can't imagine not having one. That must be terrible.
1: Yeah. I wouldn't wish that on anyone. anyone.
0: Yeah. So, so I think that speaks to the, you know, I, I don't think she has one level of programming. I think the, the, the foundational robotics laws are underneath there. Um, and, and in some ways it gets conflicted with her imperial programming, if you will. Right. The question that I have with regards to that line is do you have any, have you thought at all about what Demrezel's goal there was? Was she trying to make him feel bad for lying or feel bad for not having a vision? Like, did she just, you know, what level of hurt was she going for?
1: I think it was a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. Honestly, <laughs> she obviously knows his whole story was bullshit and I think she's probably frustrated as a true luminist that he took advantage of this very important, you know, pilgrimage that's valuable and meaningful to that religion. Yeah, I think that she wanted to hurt him in both of those ways to point out, you know, gloatingly, I'm so glad that you had a vision because I can't imagine not. I think she wanted to hurt him. She wanted to point out that she knew he was lying and she also wanted to make him feel like an ass for not having a vision.
0: You know, it's a very short sequence, but I think it, it, for me, it really resonated. I thought it was spectacular.
1: Very good. Yeah. I'm curious what you think about the way that they're bringing in religion because to my knowledge, I think that Luminism and and this um, Church of the Seer—that's kind of the Synax religion—are show creations. I'm I'm curious what you think about that. Are we going to see new religions in future seasons? Is is that just a especially the Luminism part because that's a big religion that might you know if there's a, a rift between Luminists and. The Cleonic dynasty that helps kind of show one way that the empire is falling. Maybe
0: it's funny that I haven't really spent as much time thinking about that as I have. I generally speaking, I, you know, I, I'm not a religious person, but I love thinking about religion. Theology gets me going. I find it to be fascinating, and I like the way that they explore theology in the different aspects in in foundation. Now. The Luminism in, in the, the Gale Dornick intro to that is very explicitly stated of the Empire is only for when you're here. Religion has to deal with what happens after. Right. And I think that is a very powerful idea, mm-hmm. especially for, you know, a dynasty that never essentially dies. Initially, my feeling was almost that whether or not the Cleons had a soul was was again almost another red herring it was it was not really central but i think the transformative experience even though it's not quite the transformative experience that he wants to have or that he expresses i think it's clear that that cleon 12 does have a transformative experience in there and so i think that and given sort of what I read in the article pointing towards season two and, and maybe where they're going with the Cleons, I think that that definitely has a part of it. And that's why I was asking if we think the Cleons are going to make it through this, because the Cleons are somewhat unique in the fact that they have, at least in, in the, the story that we have set up, they have their sort of their own enclosed ecosystem right they have the ability to perhaps grow and expand in ways that other people don't Hmm. and and so that's why i'm i'm kind of toying with the idea right now that maybe the Cleons become a linchpin ultimately in in the galaxia transformation Hmm. maybe could. so I, i just glancing through you know notes so while we were watching on on sunday i think we're both taking notes um i'll I'll just kind of run through these quickly and and see where this takes us sure so episode one i love the way that synax is presented like just the landing pad being underwater like there's a landing pad there but the seas have risen to the point that you can't see it but it's still there i think that that really resonated with me this time i'm not exactly sure why Gail in the intro mentions the mule which we both talked about yeah. so clearly the mule, and I think in the the casting announcement the mule was mentioned as a character that was was going to be there
1: yeah I don't know if they mentioned the mule specifically as someone who had been cast I'm really curious if they're gonna yeah. bring him in season two or if it'll be a little bit farther out
0: you would, I mean who knows what the way they do it I love Demerzel's
1: glance when
0: dusk says to kill Mm. Um, and I put them, and I can't remember who, who they were talking about killing, whether it was the...
1: Oh, to, to kill, I think, Gail and Harry. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's what it was, yeah. So Dusk says, kill them, those two, and Demerzel has this look, and that's why I think it's very explicit that she influences Day to expel them instead, mm. because it was up to Dusk. And that's another interesting aspect. Dusk seems to be very black and white, no matter what number of dusk it is. The, the, there's a scene where Harry and Gail are talking after the trial, I think it is. And I just, I, the, the lighting in that scene was stunning. Mm. They, were, they were in, it was like there were areas of very bright sunlight and areas of shadow. And they kept kind of, the camera angle would flip back and forth between them. Visually, it was just really, it, it really resonated with me. In episode two, I love the scene with dusk. And painting on the ladder and sort of mm-hmm. falling off the ladder. I mean, the first time I saw it, I thought he was going to fall off and crack his head open.
1: Yeah, I want to know why he's still using a traditional ladder this far in the future to Don't do this. Like a little
0: hover platform or something?
1: Yeah, strap him in to something safer. Why is he climbing up a rickety ladder as like a 70-year-old man? <laughs>
0: in his house slippers, no less. <laughs> yeah. Love the Cleon house slippers. Those things are amazing. When Dusk goes out to the Seer church, and it was... So when... In episode one, when Gail goes into the seer church, right, like they've got, the whole floor is flooded. So it's like you're on Synax, which I just thought that was a nice touch. But after the the scar is made with the loss of the bridge, the seer church loses all its water and all the, that priest has is that little bucket of water.
1: Oh wow. I didn't notice that. Yeah.
0: That's cool. It, which was you know, it, I hadn't, I hadn't picked up on that until Sunday. So I thought that was, was really great. So the seer minister, and, and you brought up that is, is, is he a quack or is he a visionary?
1: I don't know. I think, I think it was really interesting how he very quickly dismissed Gail and said, you know, God does not see her. She is not a part of our church. I think Dust was looking for some reinforcement that what Gail was saying was true and and he thought he could find that from that minister. Yeah.
0: You asked the question, is there going to be more of this? That particular priest played a really big, seemingly a really big role in calling to question certain things. And I mean, the Synax religion, the the religion of the seer, seems very quackery, you know. just blind adherence and, you know, kill people who read and kind of crazy shit, but
1: it does. And I don't know that we know for sure how large the that religion, the uh, the, the Seer Church, the Sleeper God, whatever it's officially called is. I, I think we know for sure it's much smaller of a religion than Lumenism, but sure. was it just on Synax or is it a thing on other planets. This church is here on Trantor, which makes me think that other planets probably do practice this religion too. But I mean, at the end of the season, Synax is gone. Nobody is left on that planet. Right. It's completely underwater. So yeah, if that religion lives on, it'll be cool to see maybe how it how it is practiced on other planets. And are they as anti-science, anti-learning? Yeah, does that
0: translate on other planets outside of Synax? That's an interesting question. Right. So I love that, which leads into my next point, which I found interesting. So in episode two, they're on, what's it called? The deliverance, whatever their slow ship is. The deliverance, yeah. So they're on the deliverance and the scene in the laundry room where Harry starts mm. sort of preaching to everybody and giving the rah-rah, he's suddenly got a backwards collar like a priest.
1: Hmm.
0: And, and you know, eventually Harry comes to sort of say he needed to sort of, in some ways, mythologize pathologize himself and so i just that seemed to be a very interesting costuming choice
1: it is although i do feel like whenever we see future based shows collars are gone the collarless thing is just always present so it, it might be intentional and it might not be It's an interesting thought though i didn't even think about it i just
0: it's just uh, like yeah. these are just little things i noted down yeah so moving on to episode three so episode three is, you know, that's the one with the first 15 minutes is mm. the end of, of dusk slash twilight, which is so good. It, it's such a, a delightful sort of way. And, and yeah. Goyer in the, in the podcast talks about, you know, why it was a very specific and deliberate decision to spend that much time on that. But it really does frame out just how bizarre the life of a Cleon is in the fact that again, you've got an expiration date, All right. Yeah. 9 a.m., September 15th. Yeah. You're going in, buddy.
1: I know. And the most interesting part of that whole sequence to me is that, you know, Brother Darkness, as he's walking, about to be dusted, he looks back, and the baby is crying, and he's like, something's wrong. That's what my note is! Right? And how did he know it? And, yeah, that, you know, that's a left-handed baby. That baby is not right.
0: (laughs) He's not right at all. When you watch it the first time, You probably don't pick up on that, right? Because babies Mm -hmm. cry and this old dude's freaking out and doesn't want to go into the incinerator. Yeah, I didn't notice it. But obviously it has huge import because, as you said, that baby ain't right.
1: (laughs) It came out wrong.
0: (laughs) We go back to Terminus. I am not a fan and, and I understand. So in the books and even in the show, the encyclopedias... It's, it's a red herring. It's a ruse. It's busy work. It's not the main focus. And I, I guess the water clock sundial debate is meant to illustrate that. Yeah. But that's that whole scene just makes me want to punch something. I just don't like it. Why? Because I think it's the dumbest conversation ever. <laughs> because it's not like a sundial is universal. Right? It We're talking about... Living on different planets with different suns, different inclinations. I mean, all sundials, I'm thinking, are not created equal. So...
1: Yeah. It does make you a little bit nervous for if they're spending this much time on sundial versus water clock or whatever. We've got
0: space travel and we're worrying about sundials. Uh,
1: Yeah. After 35 years of being on Terminus... This is where we are? Probably not great.
0: Yeah. So I wasn't, I wasn't a big fan of that. <laughs> we get introduced to Hugo, who introduces the concept of the traitors. Now, again, yeah. you know, in in the book, you have the encyclopedias, the mayors, then have the power, and then the traitors and the merchant princes. Um, and so Hugo introduces the idea of, of the traitors. But, you know, obviously they're they're sort of mashing everything together. Now, one of the things that was revealed in the season two article that I was reading is that the religion that the foundation ends up building around the technology Mm. that is going to show up in Mm. season two. And I think that's like what the first part of um, foundation empire Mm. where they sort of establish um, or maybe it's at the end of the foundation. It all kind of blends together, but, but, but the, the point is when, when the foundation agrees to share the technology with the the four barbarian kingdoms in the mm-hmm. book, they do so under the shroud of a religion. So people come to Terminus to learn how to run the nuclear reactor. They go home as priests of the nuclear reactor, right? <laughs> and so so I, I think they're they're ultimately going to go there. I just I find that to be funny. But but Hugo, I think I think the Hugo character pays homage to the idea of the traitors in the book, but I don't think Goyer wants to get himself bogged down in in the exact sort of evolution that that the books have.
1: Yeah, one of the um the casting notes for season two is that, you know, the little boy Polly mm-hmm. is going to be Polly Barisoff. Yes. <laughs> and he is going to be like a cleric of yeah. of this church of science, which I think is what you're alluding to, right? Yeah, exactly. And so the adult version of Polly will yep. be in season two. Yep.
0: Yeah. Well, it was funny because I remember Verisov from the later story. And so when they introduced, you know, they said his is, name, like Verisov. Oh, wow, cool. I just thought it was, I didn't realize they were going to carry him through. Yeah. And I've got a quote here and I don't honestly remember who said it. So maybe you can remember. When are any of you going to think for yourselves? I think that's Salver Harden, is it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think so too because she is. It's so interesting what they do with Salvor, and I like it a lot. I like that she is this very hardened, you know, uh, protector. She's not a mayor, she's a warden. Um, But yeah, I think she does. She's, everyone else is worried about the plan and what would Harry do. And she is like, (laughs) who cares? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I would wear that, honestly. (laughs) But she's worried about these three, you know, Anacreon Corvettes who are right there. Ready to fire, and she does not care about Harry or his plan.
0: And the other note that the last note I have for episode three is again, why is the Prime Radiant on Terminus? It should not be on Terminus. <laughs> because no one, besides the fact that no one knows how to open the damn thing, when they do open it, they're like, well, what the hell is that?
1: Well, <laughs> yeah, so do you think that the intent was for Harry and, well, I guess Raish would have brought the Prime Radiant with him whenever he left following Harry's suicide on the deliverance or because that whole plan got mixed up. Yeah,
0: probably. It
1: got left behind. It was very rushed. You know, Rache made a split second decision to put Gail in that pod and send her away and to protect so, her. Right.
0: And so, so of course Rache gets sent out the airlock. Yeah. Somehow Mary ends up with the prime radiant. Right. Presumably. I don't know why. Yeah. Can we talk about Louis Pyrene's deliverance haircut? Just for a second. Sure, please, yeah. Uh, You know it. It's it's so hilarious. Like I had to sort of remind myself that's Lewis, because when you think of Lewis Pyrene, you think of late model Lewis Pyrene, the close shorn hair and not the the super surfer bangs, just
1: (laughs) frosted tips almost. It
0: was yeah, it was too much.
1: I know. I think there's only so many ways that you can use the same actor. And like a 34, 35 year yeah. time jump. And it's a wig. It's like an it's an awful wig <laughs> most of the time. Good. And that one was particularly bad.
0: It, uh, it was entertaining. So we move on to episode four. And we learn a little bit more about the Cleons. So here's another aspect of this genetic dynasty that just spooks me the hell out. And that's these 24 hour service. It's shown as a woman, but... Presumably it could be a man or a woman. Yeah. Twenty-four hours with the Emperor, and we're gonna wipe your brain. Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. So people now become disposable in in service of the the Emperor. And I mean you can understand why you would need to do that, but man, that's that's some dark, creepy corners.
1: <laughs> Very creepy corners, and it makes me wonder if a Cleon particularly likes one of these concubines can he request that one in the future they have no memory of the last time they were with him
0: or do they wipe them out and just get rid of them altogether?
1: exactly is it how many times can your brain be wiped like that before there's other side effects yeah or you're right do they just kill them and the kleons are told that it's a a memory farm upstate yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) you can visit anytime
0: Let's take a quick aside here while we're talking about, you know, creepy, inappropriate things. And I'm curious on, on your perspective um, as a woman, because when I was reading slash listening to Foundations, Foundation and Earth, the whole scene with Liza whatever her name is, on Comporion made me cringe. Mm. Golan Trevise, in the first part of Foundation and Earth, is in my estimation a disgusting pig and- It's horrible. The way that Asimov describes sort of the sexual attraction and interaction, but it's just, it was not good.
1: Yeah, you know, it's, I've had an interesting journey reading these novels now for the first time in 2021, 2022, because Yeah, those first books have zero women, and they don't even no. They're not even close to passing the Bechdel test. They're so far from that; it's amazing. And I had to put that aside, and I enjoyed them for what they were, even though it's hard to to feel like where is my representation in this book. (laughs) Kept reminding myself of when it was written. It's fine, but yeah, that even the later books, when we start to have female characters, and we have someone like Golan Trevise. Yeah, he's horrible i mean he's not a likable character whatsoever the way that he especially interacts with women and the way he talks to other people it's horrible yeah it's not great
0: and and so i think that's part of the part of the appeal if salver harden in the tv show becomes that implement i think that's that's a really good adaptation in, in my opinion and and one thing that i will say about that i do find very enjoyable about the tv series is it's a very inclusive environment it is you know it, it, that's you don't normally get that right like even even in the battlestar galactica reboot which was you know in a lot of ways i think you know an exceptional reboot in terms of of bringing in the sort of that gritty reality but it was still very white male dominated with, you know, sort of token characters here and there. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's to me, it's refreshing seeing foundation being across the board. I think.
1: It is. It's very refreshing. And I think it's another reason why I have trust in Goyer as the showrunner, because he explicitly talks about the way he built his writer's room to include women, to include people of different yeah. backgrounds and faiths and races that I think makes a big difference. You can hear the female voices, Of the writers and some of these characters and the gender flipping is is amazing i'm so happy about it i I
0: think it's it's a way to absolve some of the sins of the source material and you know on on the regular podcast we've come across this you know with with certain songs that were Mm -hmm. recorded in the late 70s or the early 80s and you know in the lens of the 2020s they don't translate at all and and I'm not excusing that, but there was a different attitude. And especially when you go back to the late forties and early fifties, I mean, you know, it was, it was a different time period that gave rise to the, the written material. So, but I, I think Goyer has, has done a great job of adapting for that.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's just how you said it. it it's not completely inexcusable, but if you put yourself in the mindset of the time period, it's easier to understand why that music was written that way or performed that way, or why these books that were written in world war II sound the way that they do.
0: Yeah. Um, one of the things that, and I want to say that it's day who says it. So in that episode four opens with him and his little concubine, and she, she offers him any pleasure that he wants. And he says, how about the pleasure of nothing,
1: hmm.
0: you know? And it's just like, it, it's, it's a very brooding sort of a line that I just, one of my least favorite words in the world is the word angst. It's a very angsty line, but I'm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> I like, so the, the episode is called the mathematician's ghost. And so, Salvor keeps interacting with ghosts. Now, she thinks it's Harry's ghost, but in fact it's not, even though by the time the series is over, Harry's ghost comes out of the vault, which is funny. <laughs> um, I do have a note here about how this shows Day getting all testosterone So, this is when Twelve now is on the center throne who was rising dawn in episode one and he is just out of his mind we do get again a nod to the source material in the encyclopedias versus the town government so at that point salver's father i think is the mayor yeah and and salvers you know the um the warden so they're like the municipality if you will and you know the encyclopedias are all running around doing the wrong things (laughs) and the the municipal people are doing the right things. Again, I think it's good of Goyer to give a nod to the source material without becoming mired in the source material, so kudos to him. Oh, this is another line that I got that sort of stuck with me. I could do worse to you, much worse. Hmm. Okay, moving on to episode five, I have a note here about the sky of Synax because it's wonderful. Then I ask, is this the start of the second foundation? And I also said it's not my favorite episode. Hmm. So something about five just didn't really work for me.
1: So besides the kind of seeing the backstory um, on Senex, what else happens in five? Remind me.
0: Episode five, it's called Upon Awakening. Oh, okay, so Gail Dornick is forced to execute her former teacher and she finds herself aboard the Raven. She stumbles upon a wounded yet seemingly alive Harry at Terminus, the Imperial ship. Aegis carrying Commander Dorwin enters orbit and Dorwin is informed of the captive Farrah and her just demands to speak with uh, the foundation.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's one of those kind of table setting episodes. So yeah. I did like seeing what we did on Synax, but the terminus storyline is a little bit it's a little bit slower moving pieces around where we need them to be for the last episodes. Normally I like
0: exposition, but there was a lot there that just didn't necessarily sit well with me. I did think that the flashback to Synax, I like when storytellers will sort of force me to look at uncomfortable things that I don't want to. And, you know, I think the the teacher who ultimately gets executed, you know, he's a great vehicle to do that. And just the way he sort of deals with his execution it's it's uncomfortable but powerful
1: it is and we see gail's hand in it which i think is is pretty wild too and they're drowning him with his own books and is that just not the worst it's the worst
0: (laughs) yeah i mean as as scientific people right like my my other house is filled with books because that's those have value to me I've told my kids when I'm dead, you know, don't, don't get sentimental about my books. They're important to me. They don't have to be important to you. But, but the point of the matter is I thrive on information, whether that's, you know, fictional information or, you know, factual information. Books to me represent something more important. And so to not only execute people for reading books, but to execute them by their books oh that's terrible
1: horrible (laughs) one thing i did have from episode five the i think the biggest thing that stood out to me in all of the table setting on terminus is when Farah kind of curses selden for inflaming the empire and leading to the destruction of anacreon i I thought that was pretty interesting that was an
0: interesting spin on that right And, and i think it it sort of illustrates and you can see this anywhere right you can interpret facts or data any way you want to yeah um, depending on your your particular spin so that that's a great catch um, So episode six I'm gonna have I'm gonna have fun for a second. Game of Thrones
1: yes okay
0: <laughs> So we're introduced to luminism the maiden mother and crone. correct me if I'm wrong, but aren't those three of the seven from Game of Thrones?
1: They are I was thinking the same thing I was <laughs> like why is there always a damn crone? Why is it always a crone? <laughs>
0: Okay, good. I'm glad uh, glad that that resonated with you as well. It you did. know, and, and again, I think I don't know if Goyer worked on Game of Thrones or not, but
1: I don't think so.
0: But it's it's a nice nod to something in the genre that is obviously made a very big impact.
1: It is, and I'm happy to have removed all of the men from this uh, matriarchy. We just need the ladies. That's it. It's That's fine. It? That's all we need.
0: <laughs> I love you know. It's it, it's a shame the way ultimately this goes down. Zephyr Halima is clearly a much more adept leader than the one who ends up getting it. I forget what her name is, but just they're on different levels of the the playing field. And it's amazing. It is. High marks for the aesthetic of the Imperial ship, Mm. the way it looks, the way it, it kind of glides in and sits next to whatever that platform is. So it sort of creates its own tower effect. I just thought that was... You never see ships oriented in that fashion. I just thought it was a really cool choice.
1: I agree. I I think Goyer talked too about some of the ship design and that kind of to point out that only the Empire has access to jump drive technology and that that big hole in the middle of the ships is generating a black hole and that's how they bend space and time. It's so cool. It's brilliant. Can I ask you one thing while I'm thinking about the ships? Yeah. Spacers are used in the show to represent these genetically engineered, I'm guessing humans. They look human are they're, they're human-ish. they have very long, creepy necks. but
0: Very long, creepy necks and, and wiring.
1: <laughs> exactly. So I at first was thinking, are these robots, kind of strange robots? But I think that they're just genetically engineered humans who are made to be awake during the jump and it doesn't affect them. But right. I'm really curious at the fact that they're choosing to call them spacers.
0: Yeah, I hadn't even thought of that, but that is very fascinating. Yeah. That that they do that. So we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. I, I hadn't caught that. Excellent. Thank you. So this is where Dawn starts having his issues. And and I believe episode 6 is the episode I was telling you about that I the first time I watched it, I didn't see the beginning. Mm. So I didn't see Dawn jump out of the window and not get squashed. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Does Dusk At this point, know that Dawn is screwed up and is he purposefully messing with him or through their little hunt, does he start to figure out at that
1: point? It's a good question because I like that we don't see this interaction, but presumably the shadow master is coming to Dusk and telling him all of this. Mm -hmm. He's telling him, I saw Dawn jump out of this window. He's talking to this girl, Azura in the gardens and we don't see that interaction with them until the hunt, but I think he had to have known something was up earlier.
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree. And like one of the things I didn't, I don't think I caught it till my second watch through is when the shadow master shows up at the very end to pick up yeah. the, the little, whatever the little birds are. <laughs> and it was like, oh, oh shit. He really did know about this. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I agree with you. I think uh, I think it is. I believe this is where we have the argument on the Raven between Gale and AI Harry, where he pitches a fit about Gale being there, and she was supposed to be on Terminus and this, that, and the other thing. And Harry goes into a whole big thing of, I had to split you and race up because you were going to fuck up the plan. Mm-hmm. This is one of the times where I take great exception with, with what's going on because the plan should not be influenced by two people being together or not being together agree psychohistory is built upon huge numbers of people and so the idea that two people being together could throw the whole plan off and that harry is the one saying this really doesn't sit well with me
1: i agree completely i think I'm really curious to find out. Maybe we never will, but I don't like that part either. Okay, I, I think they they make it seem like this relationship is a major problem. It's going to cause major impacts to the plan. That should not be the case. These are two people. Let them be in love and go to Terminus. Figure uh, out something else. And, and I mean,
0: it seems to me that it, Goyer needed a reason to A, get rid of Rage Because he was, you know, from a character's point of view, he was maybe perhaps a dead end. And he needed to get Gale on a different track. Right. I I get, or at least I can project why he needed to do that. I just wish he'd come up with everything else that he's done with such a plum, To to be so clumsy with that, I think is
1: disappointing. Same here. Yeah, I didn't didn't like that part of the story quite as much.
0: Here's a fun thing. So let's go back to um, Luminism. Now, we know that... Demerzel is a Luminist. We know that Demerzel is a robot. We also know that at some point in the future, we find out that our Daniel Oliva has been re-invigorating his brain and creating new brains. Yep, yeah. Is the Luminism cycle of rebirth pointing towards mm. Daniel's multiple brain thing?
1: Very interesting. I had not even considered that, but it's, it's a great thought. Um, it is a sense, in, in a sense, kind of a reincarnation, right? Yeah, exactly. I don't know. The, the, the fact that Demerizel is religious, to me, is very interesting alone. And is it part of her programming? Is it not? How did that come to be? And, and Dave even asks that question. It's like, how?
0: Well, and I love that, right? Because there's, clearly she has cognitive abilities, And being alive tens of thousands of years, right? And and in some ways, it's perhaps related to the vampire question, right? When you're alive for that long, and I think Anne Rice dealt with this um, with regards to Lestat, how do you keep yourself engaged? Do you keep yourself interested? I think it's it's an interesting spin to have a robot sort of adopt a religion and to maybe provide some perspective in a, in a way that's completely different than it is for, you know, humans. Different aside, as, as we, as I thought about this, going back to the books, I find it fascinating that in the books, Asimov attributes very, very short lives to humans. Golan Trebiz is what, in his forties? And he's like an old man. Right. Or maybe it's Pelerati's in his fifties and he's an ancient man. Mm -hmm. It's just like, I just, I found that to be interesting, but, but yeah, I I love the fact that Demerzel is a religious robot and I'm totally good with that. I think it's cool. I do too. Um, And then of course we have the implication of Demerzel bowing. I love sort of the, the explanation that she provides of, look, if it was going to be a problem for you, I wouldn't have been able to do it. Yeah. Um, but Day is clearly pissed off at that. And it it's kind of fun to show the two of them sort of vying with each other a little bit because it's never immediately clear. And I think the Cleons themselves sort of start asking that, how she sees them versus the original. And I think to me, it sort of implies, you know, who has... Who has control, sway, or power in this relationship, actually? Right. Because I think I think Demrazel pulls a lot of strings that maybe they're not aware of.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I think Demrazel has the power. She makes it seem as though the Cleons have the power. And at this point in the dynasty, she probably has heard every question they're going to ask. And she already knows how she's going to need to answer it to, yeah. to get the outcome that she wants.
0: She's clearly smarter than they are. <laughs> so moving on to episode seven, Day is absolutely awesome in this, and I believe this is this is when he walks the spiral, right? Right. It's it's just a, a powerful sort of thing. Everything about it. Um, I believe it's it's Zephyr Halima who has the fantastic line: "You are the reverberations of a dead man's ego." Mm. Ooh. I mean, for a clone, that's got to cut deep and and she delivers it really spot on. And the other thing that I I picked up on here is Harry uses the phrase first foundation for the first time here Mm. because up until then, you know, and and I believe in one of the, one of the books it's, there's a reference to the fact that no one ever talks about the first foundation, even though there's two. And I just thought that was interesting.
1: Is he saying that to Gail? Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah, I believe he tells her she should have been with the first foundation. Mm. Moving on to episode eight. So this is when we're talking about founding the second foundation on Helicon. We've already talked about that. Okay, this is where Day takes the takes the walk on, on the maiden. This is a huge risk. He's he's out there without his aura, without his nanobots. He's he's I mean, anything could happen. He could have died. Though his little partner died. It, it was it was stunning the amount of risk he was willing to accept in order to prove that point.
1: It is. And I, I think something that Goyer mentioned in the official podcast is that there have been times during this 400-year Kleonic dynasty where a Kleon has died in the middle of his reign, any of the steps. And they just, of course, they have backups. Right. so. I'm assuming that that's why Demrizal let this happen, because at the end of the day, they have another. But but do you think that that's widespread knowledge? If he would have died on the spiral, everybody on the Maiden would have known.
0: And how how do you explain it when tomorrow a new one shows up on Trantor? That's a really great question.
1: Right. I mean, I guess it's not a secret that they're clones, so yeah. it, it, it wouldn't be maybe that big of a, a reveal that they have another one ready to you know, pick up right where that one left off, but it's interesting.
0: Yeah, it really, really is. Yeah. So I think that's, that's all I've got. We talked a lot about the other stuff on eight episode nine. Interesting because episode nine provides us the first mention and introduction to the earth legend. Salva Hardin's father tells her about that. Now, again, if you don't know the full source material, that's going to seem like a throwaway line, but to my ears, it's like, Ooh, okay. Earth. Because again, we know that Goyer has all the source material and he's sprinkling it in, in, you know, whatever magical way he wants. I just thought that was, that was a really great way to sort, you know, I think for someone who isn't familiar with the stories, like Kevin, I think that is, you know, when, when those people go back and rewatch the whole series, that's going to be one of the lines are like, Oh, oh.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I know. I know. I'm, I'm curious too, to know for, for non, uh, book readers watching the first time—if that even registered to them—the yeah. fact that because that is something in sci-fi stories that is a cool thing to find out, right? Are we in our universe? In our universe, is Earth a thing here? Yeah, and it is a cool thing to figure out, regardless, but especially in this story, it's it's actually of import.
0: The other interesting thing that I I, I find fascinating about the Foundation universe that Asimov created and Goyer kept this is that human beings are the only sentience. It's not like a Star Wars or a Star Trek where you have these little alien species running around. True. It's humans. All humans. All different types of humans. All different places. But all humans. You can't really call it a deviation from the norm because this was written in the 40s.
1: It is, yeah. I hadn't thought about it. Very interesting. And then
0: at the end, Harry comes back from his coffin. Now, did you ever watch... Avatar The Last Airbender?
1: I did, yeah.
0: Okay, so when Harry tells the story of the Thespian and Anacreon, you know, kerfluffle, it reminded me very much of one of the episodes from Avatar The Last Airbender where they're going through the valley with the two clans of people who hate each other. Yeah. And Aang makes up a story about, you know, why this big to-do wasn't anything at all. And he made it up. And I'm pretty sure Harry made this one up as well. Yeah. Um, it just... It was funny. I, so I, I don't know if... If, again, that was a nod to what I think is an excellent animated series or not. But it resonated with me in that way. I'm glad you watched The Last Airbender. It's amazing. <laughs> it <Yeah>. really is. <laughs> My kids and I have watched it like three times all the way through. Here again, this is Goyer foul number two. Mm. And, and again, I... I don't want to emphasize this because Goyer did such a great job overall that when he does trip up, it seems to be a little bit more obvious. Right. So the idea that psychohistory is going to predict the Invictus, bullshit, not buying it, sorry. Mm. And then we get um, Pauli's Varysov, and we've had this conversation before, that scene where Day takes out Azora. Oh. In the last episode here, um, and we've talked about, you know, the rest of this. The first watch through when Dusk punches Day in the face and they start duking it out before Demerso offs Dawn. I mean, that's like stunning, right? And you're like, oh, wow. And, and I said when I when I was doing my first watch through rewatch, I was interested for that. And that didn't hit me quite as much. I enjoyed it more the third time than the second time. But this scene with Day and Azura, it is Bone-chilling every time I watch it.
1: Oh. It and do you think he does that if Demerzel does not snap Don's neck? Is that...
0: That's a... Gr- I don't know? think that he would.
1: I don't think so either. Uh, I don't know. Maybe he would have, but it, it just seems so extreme. And one of the things they don't...
0: And, and I, I'll be curious if we see, right? So we, at the end of that episode, we see the impact of that action on Demerzel when she tears her own head off. Yeah. Which is going to be a lot of repair work. <laughs> she's she's going to be at that vanity for quite some time.
1: Yeah. Need a good beauty nook.
0: But clearly Day is impacted by that. And so is is this going to deepen the rift between Day and Demerzel? I don't know. But he clearly he vents his spleen on Azura, no doubt about it. And yeah. I it, it's just You know, again, I think it's just an example of Lee Pace just delivering that. Because Goyer talks about how, you know, dramatic he can be. I love Goyer's explanation of the scene with the statisticians. Yeah. And he's like, Lee, just go. (laughs) Go bigger. Go more. This scene with Azura is extremely reserved, but it's all the more chilling for it.
1: It is. And I, yeah, I wonder too. You know, what is Day's response now to the new Don who is presumably decanted at this age? Right. Is he resentful? Is he instantly loving? Is he, you know, you're right handed and you can see color and you're not the Don who was here before you? It'll be interesting to see.
0: It it will be. I I loved, I loved before all that happened. Dusk is like, decant me a new one. I want him ready by tomorrow.
1: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, gives zero fucks.
0: <laughs> so that that takes us to the end of, of my notes. I think we pretty much covered everything. Now, there's nothing to stop us yeah. from from getting together again and talking about this at some later date if we have yeah. other inputs or ideas. So any thoughts that you want to finish up with here before we close it out?
1: No, I don't think so. This was truly a honor and a privilege, and I am so happy to have have done the rewatch with you and to have had the opportunity to talk with you.
0: Well, good. Thank you so much for joining. We've had a great time. I look forward to again, discussing more foundation as we get more. So we'll, we'll definitely have to uh, recap season two whenever it comes out. Um, Absolutely. and I think we've got some, some opportunities for you to perhaps join the larger group, uh, here in the future. So we'll see how that works out. But Thanks Sarah. Thank you. This episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you, and we look forward to your thoughts, comments, feedback, and questions. You can reach us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We are at progpala on all of those, or search for Progressive Palaver. You're welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala. That's p-r-o-g-p-a-l-a at gmail.com. Progressive Palabra is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or presumably wherever you find your podcasts. And we are, as always, hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening.